Welcome back. This is the story of the Old Testament. Thank you for being with us uh, this week. Week number 17. This is for the week of April 29th through or 23rd through the 29th. We are in the book of Numbers, walking through Numbers chapters 18 through 25. Um, We are in the wilderness with God's people, with the people of Israel. And we are seeing their trials and tribulations Um, and the sin and the unbelief of these people in the wilderness. Uh, The wilderness generation is used in the New Testament scriptures and even in the Old Testament scriptures as an example of what it looks like to not have faith in God. We see that um, even like Psalm 95, uh, which references them, or the Psalms in the, like um, Psalm 106 or or Psalm 105, Psalms like that, that kind of walk through the unbelief of God's people that uh, show God's great grace towards Israel, but also Israel's unfaithfulness back to God and the repeated falls into sin. And so as we've been walking through the book of Numbers, we've seen how God's people have repeatedly disbelieved, rejected God and his promises. There was a remnant of faith in Israel, but as a whole, the generation that came out of Egypt perished in the wilderness. And we're told the reason is, is because of their lack of faith. They did not believe what the Lord told them. And so they refuse to go into the land. Miriam and Aaron oppose Moses. Uh, The people rebel. They get consumed because they oppose the Lord and his ways and his promises. And then they, but they continually come back and back and oppose Moses, God's appointed leader. Uh, And and then eventually we have Korah's rebellion that we read about last week. And uh, then we have Aaron's staff budding, which is a confirmation of, of the fact that Aaron and Moses are the appointed leaders, and Aaron is the head of the priestly family of Israel. And that we do not, the Israelites were learning, you don't get to decide how you worship the God of Israel. You do not get to decide that. He decides it, and it is our job and our function as his people to receive what he tells us, to trust that it's for the best of us. To, for it's, it's in our interest and uh, to walk in obedience before that and to trust him and to love him. And at the very end of chapter 17, we see the people of Israel have been broken and pushed to this point where they say this in verse 12. Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? So after repeatedly experiencing the holy wrath and fire of God. Remember the fire God in, in, in the whole Exodus experience repeatedly shows himself in fire. He first of all reveals himself in the burning bush to Moses. And the idea there is what notice the fire is in the bush, but the bush is not consumed. The fire that is God is intended his, his default The consuming fire of God is his default is not to consume creation, but to live with creation. And we see that he does not consume the bush, but notice also, but he's still fire. 
he's still, um, as it were, uh, he's still holy, still holy, still uh, totally uh, and completely um, holy and just and righteous and merciful, all of those things. But that same fire that was shown on um, in the burning bush goes before them and then as a, a pillar of fire, then the whole mountain of Sinai is, is wrapped in, you know, there's, there's the fire and the smoke there. But now that same fire that was in the bush that led them out of Egypt, that was on the mountain, has now come to dwell in the presence of Israel, in the tabernacle, and they have experienced the fire of God because God, he said, I want to live with you. But the Israelites, by their sin and their rebellion and their uncleanness and their hearts of disbelief, are consumed by the holy fire of God. He is merciful and gracious. He is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But Israel here is being taught that those who reject his grace can only expect his wrath. And those here who reject his promise are burned by the holiness of God and consumed by him. And so here they're saying this, who comes near? Because everyone who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all going to perish? So that's where the people of Israel were at as we left them in chapter 17. Chapter 18, we see the duties of the priests and the Levites uh, listed there. We see laws for purification in chapter 19. Then eventually in chapter 20, we talk about, we see the, the death of Miriam. We see uh, the waters of Meribah. We see Moses' sin. And this sin will lead about the fact that he is not able to go into the promised land. He strikes the rock in a way that the Lord had not commanded him. Therefore, he is kept out of the promised land. We see uh, Israel now is trying to go into the promised land again with Edom refusing passage. Aaron dies. Um, and eventually then we get to this interesting story with the bronze serpent before Israel defeats a couple of their enemies, Og and Sihon. And then we get these chapters 22, 23, and 24 where we interact with this, uh, this prophet, Balaam. Uh, who is called by Balak, the evil king of, um, of I think it's Midian or maybe Moab. Both of those are involved there um, uh, to try to curse the people of God. And we see how that fails in that fascinating story there with Balaam. And then eventually, though, in chapter 25, the people of Israel still have not learned the lesson. And they are tempted and led astray by the idolatry, the sexual immorality of the uh, Midianites and the Moabites. And so Israel goes and worships the Baal of Peor because um, they're tempted and led astray. And then we see what happens. Uh, there's a plague that comes forth. And um, then we see the zeal of Phineas, um, who is there to, um, uh, whose who's zeal in, in killing the uh, pagan woman who is brought into the camp um, in a, such a brazen brash, rebellious way. Um, he kills them both um, and then eventually is praised by that. And so we see the plague of the Baal of Peor um, and how God's people still have a sinful, idolatrous heart. So that's kind of the overview of what we're reading this week. Uh, let's think about these things together with a few readings just to kind of uh, walk through them and, and consider these things and meditate upon them. The first thing I want to read here is from uh, Numbers chapter 21. And this is that famous story of the uh, bronze serpent. 
Um, This says this in verse 4 of chapter 21. From Mount Hor they set out by the way to the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom, and the people became impatient on the way. And the people spoke against God and against Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this worthless food. Then the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people, and they bit the people, so that many of the people died. And the people came to Moses and said, We have sinned, for we have spoken against the Lord and against you. Pray to the Lord that he may take away the serpents from us. So Moses prayed for the people, and the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a pole, and everyone who is bitten when he sees it shall live. So Moses made a bronze serpent and set it on a pole, and if a serpent bit anyone, he would look at the bronze serpent and live. This is by Edward Killian, and it's actually a, uh, um, an article for Good Friday, um, which we had fairly recently, but um, it's connecting it here to the bronze serpent. So Good Friday, The Meaning of It All by Edward Killian. Nicodemus the Pharisee had been struggling to find the meaning in Jesus' teaching. He believed that Jesus was sent from God on account of the miracles he performed, but he was not grasping what Jesus was teaching about being born again. Our Lord did not stop to explain his baptismal statements, but instead drew Nicodemus even further into the truth about why he had come to earth and what he was going to do. Jesus foretold his future by calling to mind a story from the past. He told Nicodemus, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. The story Jesus alluded to comes from Numbers 21. God had heard the cries of the Israelites and delivered them from the horrible bondage of slavery in Egypt. He opened the Red Sea and led his children safely through it while drowning their enemies. He guided them in the wilderness, protected them from enemies, provided for their every need, and promised them that they would inherit a promised land full of life-sustaining goodness and abundance. The Israelites, however, were not grateful. They rebelled against God's mercy and provision. They complained. They despised the food that God provided. They lamented their lot in life and even longed for the days of slavery. Therefore, God gave them what they desired, a life without him. He sent fiery serpents among them, and many of the Israelites were bitten and died. They were terrified. They were stricken with grief and loss. They were unable to remove the deadly venom to heal themselves. In their misery, they, they confessed their sins and cried out to God through Moses. Moses prayed to God for the people. God heard the cries of his people and once more showed them mercy. He told Moses to construct an image of a fiery serpent out of bronze, to fasten it to a pole, and to lift it up into the desert sky. When anyone was bitten by the serpents, they could simply look to the image of of the bronze serpent and be healed. God in his mercy did for his children what they could not do for themselves. He removed the deadly poison that threatened their very existence. When they looked where God told them to look for healing, life, and salvation, he led them to the deliverance they so desperately longed for. God's mercy gave them life. As we contemplate the meaning of Good Friday, we are often like Nicodemus. We struggle to find the meaning of it all. We believe in God. We know a number of Bible stories. We know some things about how we are to live and what God wants us to do. We try to reconcile our lives in the secular world to our Christian lives and see if the pieces fit together. We often feel like we have moments of clarity that make sense in our lives, but then things seem to go fuzzy again as quickly they come into focus. We want, to make th- we want things to make sense, and all too often, they just do not. This Good Friday, our Lord calls us to understand and to believe the meaning of it all. 
Like Nicodemus, he draws us to stories of the past to give clarity and meaning to the present and to the future. Jesus declares to us that just as Moses lifted up the bronze serpent, so too must he be lifted up on a cross. He reminds us of God's mercy to the helpless, snake-bitten children of Israel, then connects that story to him being lifted up on a cross to rescue an entire human race that is snake-bitten by sin. Jesus wants us to understand and to believe that this great act of deliverance is the meaning behind all of the Bible narratives. He calls us to see that his death and resurrection is the meaning of it all. Why does Jesus compare himself to a serpent, a lowly creature of wrath, Because by submitting himself to a horrific crucifixion, he becomes a cursed, reviled creature of wrath. He who had no sin becomes sin for us. He who was not an idolater dies the death of an idolater. He who is not a murderer bears the punishment of a murderer. He who is not a liar, a rapist, a swindler, an adulterer, an absentee father, a crooked politician, an addict, or an oppressor took the suffering and excruciating death that all of those sins demanded. He who was innocent died to pay for the sins of the guilty, the helpless, or excuse me, the hopeless, the snake-bitten, and the hell-bound. Here is the meaning of it all. God's law demanded atonement. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The wages of all that sin is death. It is here, at the crucifixion of Jesus on Good Friday, that God's identity is fully revealed to us. We see God in both the fullest expression of his wrath and his love. The law demanded blood atonement. Somebody had to die. But the gospel is this. He loved you so much he would not let that someone be you. In your place, he sent his own beloved son, Jesus Christ, to die and to rise again. The innocent dies for the guilty and God's wrath is exhausted. Atonement for sins is made. The debt that hell demanded is paid in full forever. You are free. As you live now, you will daily sin much, and the law will always accuse you. Since you cannot remove your own sin, look to the crucified Christ, who was lifted up so that you may look up on him to see the emblem of God's mercy to you. Jesus Christ was lifted up, was lifted up that cur- the curse of the poison that threatened your very existence would be removed. There is life in Christ Jesus and him crucified for the forgiveness of all your sin. Look to him this Good Friday and find the meaning you so desperately desire. Amen to that, right? Um, Jesus Christ is the one that we look to, and in him we are healed from all of our sins. Well, we continue on in chapter 21. Right after that, we see there's this interesting, uh, they find a well of water in the wilderness, and they sing this song. In uh, verse 17, we read, Israel sang this song, Spring up, a well, sing to it, the well that the princes dug, that the nobles of the people delved with the scepter and with their staffs. This is called Promises Fulfilled by C.H. Spurgeon. He says this, um, This well was famous in the wilderness because it was the subject of a promise. That is the well of which the Lord said to Moses, Gather the people together so that I may give them water. The people needed water, and it was promised by their gracious God. We need fresh supplies of heavenly grace, and in the covenant the Lord has pledged himself to give us all we require. The well also became the cause of a song. Before the water gushed out, cheerful faith prompted the people to sing, and as they saw the crystal fountain bubbling up, the music grew more joyful. 
In similar fashion, we who believe the promise of God should rejoice in the prospect of divine revivals in our souls, and as we experience them, our holy joy should overflow. Are we thirsting? Then let us not grumble, but sing. Spiritual thirst is bitter to bear, but we need not bear it. The promise indicates a well, so let us be of good heart and look for it. Moreover, the well was the center of prayer. Spring up, O well, what God has promised to give, we must seek after, or we show that we have neither desire nor faith. This evening, let us ask that the scripture we have read in our devotional exercises may not be an empty formality, but a channel of grace to our souls. May God the Holy Spirit work in us with all his mighty power, filling us with all the fullness of God. Lastly, the well was the object of effort. The nobles of the people dwelled with the scepter and with their staves. The Lord wants us to be active in obtaining grace. Our implements are ill-suited for digging in the sand, but we must use them to the best of our ability. Prayer must not be neglected. The gathering of God's people must not be forsaken. Ordinances must not be set aside. The Lord will give us his peace most generously, but not, at the, but not on the path of laziness. Let us then stir ourselves to seek him in whom we find all our fresh and flowing springs. So God's people encountered this amazing well of water. They then defeat Sihon. They defeat Og, uh, these two kings. And this, of course, causes the Moabites and the Midianites to be kind of scared, right? Be nervous about um, what in the world is going on here. So we read that Balak, the son of Zippor, he's scared to death. Um, And so he calls for this um, prophet, Balaam to come and to place a curse on the people of God because supposedly Balaam had a reputation that he could do this and it would work. And the idea, right, was that by placing a curse upon them, we will be able then to defeat them. And so we see what happens. You know the story. Balaam at first says he can't go, then he goes, and then who talks to him but his donkey um, speaks to him and Balaam is restrained by the Lord. He becomes an unwilling prophet uh, because he is forbidden by God to curse Israel. Instead, all he can do is bless them. And we know the story. This drives Balak nuts. He can't. He's like, just stop it. Stop it. And he tries different places uh, to get Balaam so that way he can curse them. Uh, But he's unable to. Balaam never becomes a believer, by the way. We see this uh, later on that he's killed um, and he dies in opposition to God. But he is, so therefore he is an unwilling uh, prophet of God here uh, in prophesying and proclaiming the good news of God towards his people. So Numbers chapter 23, we see here this first thing. I've got a couple of things from Numbers 23. Uh, First one is Numbers 23, 9, where it says, Lo, the people shall dwell alone and shall not be redeemed among the nations. And then the next one is verse 23. Surely there is no enchantment against Israel or against Jacob. Neither is there any divination against Israel. These two things are written by Spurgeon as we consider Balaam and his words. Uh, Spurgeon writes this, Who would wish to dwell among the nations and to be numbered with them? Why, even the professing church is such that to follow the Lord fully within its bounds is very difficult. There is such a mingling and mixing that one often sighs for a lodge in some vast wilderness. Certain it is that the Lord would have his people follow a separated path as as to the world and come out decidedly and distinctly from it. 
We are set apart by the divine decree, purchase, and calling, and our inward experience has made us greatly to differ from men of the world. And therefore our place is not in their vanity fair, nor in their city of destruction, but in the narrow way where all true pilgrims must follow their Lord. This may not only reconcile us to the world's cold shoulder and sneers, but even cause us to accept them with pleasure as being a part of our covenant portion. Our names are not in the same book. We are not of the same seed. We are not bound for the same place. Neither are we trusting to the same guide. Therefore, it is well that we are not of their number. Only let us be found in the number of the redeemed, and we are content to be off and solitary to the end of the chapter. So he says here then, surely there is, this is the verse number 23, surely there is no enchantment against Jacob, neither is there any divination against Israel. And Spurgeon writes this, how this should cut up root and branch all silly superstitious fears. Even if there were any truth in witchcraft and omens, they could not affect the people of the Lord. Those whom God blessed, devils cannot curse. Ungodly men like Balaam may cunningly plot the overthrow of the Lord's Israel, but with all their secrecy and policy, they are doomed to fail. Their powder is damp, the edge of their sword is blunted. They gather together, but as the Lord is not with them, they shall gather together in vain. We may sit still and let them weave their nets, for we shall not be taken in them. Though they call in the aid of Beelzebub and employ all his serpentine craft, it will avail them nothing. The spells will not work, the divination will deceive them. What a blessing this is, how it quiets the heart. God's Jacob wrestles with God, but none shall wrestle with them and prevail. God's Israels have to prevail against them. We need not fear the fiend himself, nor any of those secret enemies whose words are full of deceit and whose plans are deep and unfathomable. They cannot hurt those who trust in the living God. We defy the devil and all his legions. Lastly here, I want to read about Numbers 24 here, where we read about this prophecy of a star that will rise out of Jacob. Um, he speaks about this in, in Numbers uh, chapter 24, if I can find it. Yes, Numbers 24, verse uh, 17. I see him now, but not, I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. This is from by this is by Ian Duguid, uh, the risen star of Jacob. In Balaam's final oracle, he announced that a star would come out of Jacob and a scepter out of Israel, a great king who would definitively crush all of her enemies. In that day, pride of place would not be sufficient to keep Israel's adversaries safe. The Amalekites, who were first among the nations, would come to ruin. A secure location would be no defense either. The Kenites would be flushed out of their rocky lair. Even those whom God used to destroy those nations would themselves ultimately go down in defeat at the hands of others. The Assyrians, who would overcome and enslave the Kenites, would themselves be subdued in due time by a warlike power from across the sea. Meanwhile, those who brought low the Assyrians would themselves come to ruin in the end. Who can endure this great day of the Lord's wrath? This final oracle thus spans the entire sweep of human history. Nation after nation will rise to world domination and the fall to defeat. But when the messianic king arrives on the scene, no people other than Israel, the nation set apart, will survive the final day of destruction. At the end of all things, when all of human history has played out its course of changing fortunes, the Lord's people will be the only ones left standing. 
If it is true that Israel is God's people has a unique relationship with the Lord that means both their present blessing and final security, then they are indeed to be envied. If the Lord has chosen Israel to be his own and has promised to be with them in the past, the present, and the future, then Balaam's wish is understandable. Let me die the death of the upright and let my end be like his. When you, even out of the merely temporary fluctuations in the fortunes of the world and of the people and nations, there are ultimately only two fates offered in this world. There is the Lord's blessing leading to a flourishing life and an enviable death, or the Lord's curse leading to defeat and ultimate destruction. Yet the coming of the star that Balaam foresaw wasn't entirely what you might think might have predicted. At the birth of Jesus, a heavenly star indeed rose over Israel to mark where the infant king lay. Yet the baby king lay in a manger, not in a palace, and those drawn by the star were not Israelites, but foreign magi, students of signs and portents as was Balaam, who came from the east, Balaam's former home. King Herod, an Edomite by descent, was not instantly crushed by the coming of this new king, but continued his rule, slaughtering scores of innocent children in Bethlehem. The rising of this star in Christ's first coming did not yet bring about the total destruction of the nations, for Jesus had come first to be a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to Israel. Yet, in another way, his coming was exactly what Balaam anticipated. Those who, like the Magi, blessed the new Israel, Jesus, and submitted to him found a blessing for themselves. Meanwhile, those who cursed this new Israel found themselves under a curse, just as the Lord had promised Abraham. What is more, the day is yet coming when God's final judgment will be delivered on Herod and on all those who stand against him and his anointed. What that means, then, is that these oracles for Israel are precious promises for us. Some Christians believe that Old Testament promises that speak of Israel are only intended for ethnic Israel and not for the church. For them, Balaam's prophecies speak of a glorious future for the physical descendants of Israel, but they would call any attempt to apply these promises to the church replacement theology. I would suggest that this is a misunderstanding of what the scriptures teach about Israel. It is not that the church has replaced Israel in the New Testament so much as that Old Testament Israel, ethnic Israel, finds its true goal and fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus is himself the star of Jacob, the Israel of God. In the person of Jesus, therefore, the true Israel has arrived, and all those who come to God by faith in him, Jews and Gentiles alike, become God's children, and we and are thereby incorporated into this new people of God, John 1, 11 and 12. In Christ, Jews and Gentiles together become the true heirs of the promise given to Abraham, his spiritual descendants, Galatians 3.29. Outside of Christ, on the other hand, there is no longer any true Israel. It is those who are in Christ who are the true chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, 1 Peter 2.9. We have been chosen by God for exactly the same special relationship that he had with his Old Testament people. In his incredible grace and mercy, God chose us before the foundation of the world so that we might be blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. He has rescued us from the final judgment that awaits all those who remain outside his people and has given us the glory inheritance of a relationship with himself. In Jesus, the star of Jacob has risen for us and for our salvation. If this is so, then we may have the assurance of the Lord's settled purpose to bless us in Jesus Christ. 
No one can rob us of that blessing, and nothing can prevent us from inheriting its promises. All those who trust in Christ and are united to him by faith will die the death of the righteous, for Christ's righteousness is credited to them exactly as if it were their own. Whatever life throws at each of us, it must therefore always be well with my soul. For Christ has died in our place and is now risen from the dead. If we keep our eyes on that reality, then none of the traumatic rises and falls in our temporal fortunes that are an inevitable part of life in this fallen world can ever completely shake us. We will be settled on a solid rock, established on a firm foundation, People may come and go. Some will let us down and hurt us, while others, no matter how faithful, will ultimately die and leave us on our own. But God will still be there. Fortunes may be made and lost. Houses may burn. Stock markets may crash and cars will inevitably rust. Yet in Christ, we have an inheritance that no misfortune can touch. At the end of the day, only God remains and those upon whom his blessing rests. Ironically, though Balaam never found that blessing, Uh, Ironically, though, Balaam never found that blessing. Even though he declared that he wanted to die the death of the righteous, once again, his life didn't match up to his words. If Balaam truly wanted to die the death of the righteous, the way to do so was to join the righteous during his lifetime. The Magi of Jesus' day showed the way. He should have come to Israel's God and laid his treasures at his feet. Had Balaam been willing to say goodbye to Balak and, more pertinently, to abandon his passion for Balak's silver and gold, he could have received what he desired. The doors in Israel were open to aliens and strangers who wanted to abandon their, their old religions and join themselves to Israel and to her God. Sadly, though, money was more important to Balaam than achieving the death of the righteous. As a result, he stayed among the Midianites, who opposed Israel and Israel's God, and he died by the sword in their midst. Numbers 31, verse 8. It is a sobering reality to think that many people say they want to die at peace with God, but are not willing to pursue peace with God while they live. Being reconciled to the Lord is not something we can put off until the more convenient time, for in all probability such a time will never come, and we will die still in our sins, rebels against the Lord of heaven and earth. A day is coming when the star of Jacob will come to crush all such rebels and enemies. When Jesus returns to this earth, it will be as a warrior riding out for the final battle in which he will crush all of his enemies. If we want to spend eternity under God's blessing as part of his people, today is the day to enter into his favor. Come to Christ now, as the Magi did at his incarnation, and submit your life to his lordship. Ask for his forgiveness to cover your sins. Receive his righteousness to clothe your spiritual nakedness. The door is open today for everyone who will come in and bow the knee willingly to the Lord to receive his blessing. So come, enter into his people. As you do so, you will receive his blessing, find peace in the midst of a tumultuous world, and be able to and be able to look forward with joy to the day when his final victory will be accomplished. Well, I think that's a good place to see, to stop today. Um, We see Balaam prophesies and sees ahead to Christ and his kingdom and in Christ, because we're connected to him. We are part of Israel. We are the Israel of God. Um, We are because we are in Christ. We are his people. We are the royal priesthood, that holy nation, and these promises belong to us.
Thank you for listening to this. Uh, I hope it's been helpful. Again, keep reading uh, the Old Testament. We will begin and continue. We're going to look at a census next week, Numbers chapter 26, and uh, walk through as we kind of head towards the latter and ending parts here of the book of Numbers before we dive into the book of Deuteronomy uh, soon, which will be a lot of fun to read the book of Deuteronomy. It's uh, actually a book I really like a lot. So should be fun. Thanks for listening to this. Take care and God bless.